Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are coming to that place in Exodus. It continues from the end of last week's Parsha, which was uh, Revelation and the Ten Commandments. So that is where... Uh, last week left off, and this week picks up with a conjunctive vav, uh, uh, the letter vav that means and, and we get three chapters of laws. So we get the Ten Commandments, we get a little vav that says and, three chapters of law. Um, I read uh Rabbi Arthur Green's commentary on this week's Parsha. It's not here because it comes too late for me to include it usually. Um, but I read it this morning and he says um, that that vav, that little vav, that connector uh, vav is that um, Revelation, of course, continues past the Ten Commandments. Revelation continues, he would suggest, and so did the Hasidic masters. Um, Revelation continues all the time. Revelation is ongoing. It is whether or not we can tune in uh, to the signal um, to hear the call of Sinai. Um, and he says that what we get in these chapters is, um, you remember Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, says to Moshe, um, you're exhausting yourself. It's not good for you and it's not good for the people. That you are hearing every and adjudicating every case. It's not good for you and it's terrible for the people. Because who wants to deal with somebody who's dealing in burnout? Nobody. Have you gone to the DMV recently? Is it a pleasure dealing with the folks at the DMV? No, it is not. Because their working conditions are often so bad, their lives are often so stressful, that like they are folks you don't want to deal with. And Yitro seems to be saying, Moshe, you're going to be a terrible leader if you are exhausted and stressed out all the time. So it's not good for you and it's not good for the people. So, um, so what's supposed to happen? The people are supposed to that the people are supposed to appoint judges over different numbers of folk, and then Moshe is going to hear the stuff that's really hard. Um, that that those Moshe becomes like the Supreme Court in that system. So what Arthur Green argues is these are the cases from Moshe's logbook, um, rather than a big system of law saying, here's the principle, here's how you apply it, like the attorneys in the house would have to tell you more about law codes and those kinds of systems, but kind of here's the, here's the idea and here's um, you know, what flows from that idea or ideal. Um, instead, what we have in Mishpatim is a bunch of what Arthur Green says, um, are, are a bunch of examples from Moshe's logbook when he sat before the people. So once there was a guy who had a slave, and, the, and, then, and, and once there was a guy who had an ox and he gave it to his nanny and then the ox gored the blah, blah, blah and it got into the field of somebody else. And, and so what we have are just a, it's a lot of case law coming out of things that actually happened. Um, and, and we have no reason to believe that's not so. Because it's not a law code of you know, here's the ideal, here's how you apply it. This, this is not that. This is case law. So we have no reason to believe these are not things that actually happened and then the laws that flow from them um, creating what we would call precedent. All right, we're going to start at Exodus chapter 22, verse 
21. All right. Um, you have a microphone, Bert. Would you like to read? You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will hear their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger shall blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act to them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. If you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, you must return it to him before the sun sets. It is his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. In what else should he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor put a curse upon a chieftain among your people. Yeah. <laughs> you shall not put off the skimming of the first yield of your vats. You shall give me the firstborn among your sons. You shall do the same with your cattle and your flocks. Seven days it shall remain with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be a holy people to me. You must not eat flesh torn by beasts in the field. You shall cast it to the dog. Go on. You shall not carry false rumors. You shall not join hands with the guilty to act as a malicious witness. You shall neither side with the mighty to do wrong. You shall not give perverse testimony in a dispute so as to avert it in favor of the mighty. Nor shall you show deference to the poor man in his dispute. When you encounter your enemy's ox or ass wandering, you must take it back to him. When you see the ass of your enemy lying on the next page, <laughs> lying on the next page, <laughs> under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it with him. You shall not subvert the rights of your needy in their disputes. Keep far from a false charge. Do not bring death on those who are innocent and in the right, for I will not acquit the wrongdoer. Do not take bribes, for bribes blind the clear-sighted and upset the pleas of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress the stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Six years shall you sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat of it, and what they leave, let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards, and your olive groves. Mm -hmm. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your ass may rest, that your bondman and the stranger may be refreshed. Be on guard concerning all that I have told you. Make no mention of the names of other gods. They shall not be heard on your lips. Three times a year you shall hold a festival for me. You shall observe the, face, the feast of unleavened bread, eating unleavened bread for seven days as I have commanded you, at the set time of the month of Aviv. For in it you went forth from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your work, of what you sow in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in the results of your work from the field, Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Sovereign, the Lord. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, and the fat of my festal offering shall not be left lying until morning. 
the choice first fruits of your soil you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. All right, we'll stop here. All right, the reason I wanted you to keep going is because notice there is not a distinction between case law and ritual law. There is no distinction. It is not like here's the stuff that happens between y'all, you know, human beings, and then here's the stuff you have to do according to your religious obligations. There is no difference. There is no understanding that the law is secular and here's the religious law and they are separate things. That is not how things worked in ancient Israel. Right? Ancient Israel was a kingdom ruled by the the one true king, which of course was God. And the human king um, has to serve the law, which comes from God. So this idea, we take for granted um, that everyone is subject to the law. But that was not the case in the ancient world. Who, who makes the law in the ancient world? The king makes the law. Often the king could claim inspiration by the god or the gods, whatever. But it is the king who makes the law and is the source of the power of the law. Ancient Israel comes and says something radically different. And that is, even the king, especially the king, but even the king is subject to the law. The law comes directly from God. So all human beings, including the most powerful in the kingdom, is subject to the law. This is a new idea. And this is the idea that we see made manifest in a country called America, where even the highest leader in the land is subject to the law. One one hopes. Um, we can argue about what that means, apparently. Um, but right, so that 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 is the ra- that is the radical idea that America picks up on. That America says the law is what's going to rule in the land, and everybody in the land, from the president to the to, to the legislature, everybody is bound by the law. So this, we think of America as a radical experiment. Well, it began in ancient Israel, right? So there's lots of wonderful articles. Um, there's some very thick um, on uh, on Torah and a community based in Torah, ancient Israel, as the precedent for a constitution, for for the as the basis for the constitution of the United States and the way that we run um, and understand our relationship to the law in this country. So, so this may seem like, okay, it's just casuistic law from the ancient world. We have the Code of Hammurabi. We have a lot of ancient law codes. But I want you to understand that this was revolutionary um, in certain ways in its time and continued to be so. In other words, people didn't follow this necessarily. The king could change the law, right? Okay. Um, all right, I just threw these verses on here just to remind us the kinds of things that are um, being talked about. Um, I love verse 4, when you encounter your enemy's ox or ass wandering, you must take it back. There's a beautiful teaching by Danny Siegel who found teaching in Hasidic tradition um, that this is the law of return, meaning returning lost stuff. Hashabat um, Abedah, the return of lost 
items. Um, and, and in a Hasidic teaching, this is everyone's obligation, and this is especially the role of, of the spiritual leader, that, that everyone should come to the spiritual leader looking for what's lost, that everyone's lost something, and our job is to return it to each other, and particularly the spiritual leader of the community is there to help return what's been lost, to listen deeply and carefully to people and be able to speak and and give in such a way that they are returning what the person has lost, which is just a beautiful, beautiful teaching. Mm -hmm. I understood from one of my husbands who was a judge that the vast difference, however, between the laws we just heard and English common law, which is a big part of our law, is that Jewish law, these ancient laws, uh, really stress responsibility. And English common law stresses rights. And so do we in this country. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can write the essay as your homework um, that, that, that talks about w what's the difference ultimately, right? Like, I get it. Like, we, responsibility versus rights, but also what, what's the deep difference, right, between rights and responsibility? They should, right, they should, right, go together. Um, so Hashivat Avedah, the return of lost stuff, um, there, someday there's going to be a sermon on it, um, because that's what the temple was when we get the commandment to come three times a year. If you lost something, you would come to the temple like if I left something in Jerusalem last Passover and I come on Shavuot, you come to the temple looking for what you left there on Pesach. So the temple actually was a big lost and found center. <laughs> so someday I'm going to give a high holiday sermon on isn't that what we still are? Ultimately, aren't we still a lost and found center, right? That people who have lost something come looking for it at temple and folks who have found something Come hoping to share it. Uh, I mean, right? Like, not sure what the chiddush is yet, but there's going to be a sermon someday. You heard it here first. Okay. Betsy. And then Mehmet has a question. Thank okay. You. Um, so the last line that was read, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Mm -hmm. I know from that we get all the laws of kashrut or most Some of the, of the only meat and dairy laws. Only the meat and dairy. So my question is, how, how was that expanded or who expanded it to the point where, like, as an example, my son is going to be spending two years studying that line. Yeah. Of Torah. Like, where, where does all that come from? So once we have the Torah law, the rabbis who have to make a halachic system, they systematize all these laws, right? So it starts in Torah, and that's called Doraita, from the Torah, Doraita in Aramaic. Law that is Doraita is the most stringent. Then you want to make sure nobody comes even near breaking the law that's Doraita. Okay? How do you do that? You put what's called a geder, a fence around the law. So you, so the fences get wider and wider and wider depending on the circumstances that causes halacha to expand because the danger increases. So what, what does that mean? So what meat? You, you can't cook a kid in its mother's milk. Does that mean you, you can with a cow? Okay. Well, if I'm eating some kind of meat in a cream sauce 
and someone sees me, a halachic authority, eating it, how do they know if it's a kid or a calf? They don't. They can't. Therefore, they might think, well, I saw Rabbi Amy Bernstein eating it. It must be okay. So, or, God forbid, the leader of our community was eating trace. God forbid. So, so what does that mean? You put a fence around the law saying, no meat in milk. And then chicken, is it chicken or veal? They both are a white meat. Like, how, how can you tell? Now chicken becomes part of that, right? Is it, because you, you can't tell. So that, the fence sometimes is about you, you can't tell. So you want to guard against anyone thinking somebody's doing something that they're not doing. Ma'arit ayin, right? The, the bad eye. Um, and sometimes it's to keep people from breaking the original law. It's still right time. So th- that fence gets bigger and bigger. Correct. Correct. It did not include fish. So, you know, so, so then in a progressive Jewish community, everybody kind of has to decide for themselves, do I want to take this seriously at all? And if so, why? Why do I care about meat and a cream sauce? Well, if you take the law from its original context, probably we're talking about a ritual with neighboring cultures that seized a fetal kid in its mother's womb, like in utero, right? So it was probably a fertility ritual and using the milk, right? So, and it seems that Torah is like, you can eat animals, but there is a limit to what you can do with them, right? And to cook it in its own, it just, there's, there's a limit. And that seems to be one of them that Torah doesn't want us to cross. Um, and so we might from that, from some of us in progressive Judaism derive from that, not that you can't eat meat and dairy together, but let's talk about the boundaries we would put around ethical eating of animals, right? So I don't eat veal. I just can't because it goes to, to this kind of a law for me that it's like, we can eat animals, but there's also a certain limit to what we should support and allow in terms of how they're treated, right? And veal's just like, that's a line for me. But that's, hmm? Well, I don't eat foie gras for the exact same reason, right? They force feed the geese to make the liver really fat. So, um, so for me, that law still means a lot to me, but not the way the rabbis interpreted it, right? For me, what's important about that law is, all right, Amy, you're not a vegetarian. I'd love to be. Like, ethically, I'm a vegetarian, but not in practice. So um, so uh, if you're going to eat animals, okay, that's a compromise that we've made or that, that, that I've made. But there's, for me, there's got to be a limit, and that's one of them. Uh, Mehmet. Um, I love the idea of um, uh, the temple being uh, a center of um, lost and found. Um, <laughs> I think that's exactly why you saw me uh, wandering like seven or eight years ago, and you made me return. Uh, I can certainly speak of um, experience. Um, uh, Emotionally experience and um, experience uh, um, uh, in terms of my identity. I I love that idea. Thank you. Ah, Beautiful, Mehmet. Thank you for reminding us. 
that these things are powerful, not just as metaphors, but as lived experience, right? That That's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, okay, did another, I... Another one... Did I see a hand in the room? I thought I saw a hand. No? Okay. Yeah. One of these that I particularly like is the not keeping the cloak overnight. Yes. Of someone who's done work for you. And I've read that that really is talking about paying your bills on time. That if someone comes to your house and they do work for you, they've already given you the work. But you are obliged to give them the money right away. I, mean, I guess that's interpretation on top of interpretation. Well, there's a different law that you're re referencing, which is a day laborer. You have to pay a day laborer uh, that day. You right. can't, it, and it's part of this collection of laws, but we, we just didn't read it. But yeah, you have to pay a day laborer their wages that day because they've given you the work, they depend on the cash, so you, you can't withhold it because they need it then to buy like groceries for dinner. As I was reading this, the whole thing, I was just struck by the incredible compassion and decency of all of these laws and consideration they require for other people. Yes. All right. So that takes us to our to our commentaries. Um, this is Rabbi Rami Shapiro to Bert's point. This is but a small slice of a long list of statutes governing the life of the early Israelites. Over and again, concern is with the powerless, the stranger, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. It is the hallmark of our law that power is not the currency of society. Justice is. Torah forbids one to harm the stranger, and then it goes beyond the law and appeals to deeper emotions, to our memory of being strangers, and asks that we allow that memory to kindle our compassion for those who are strangers still. The Torah is not satisfied with not harming the stranger. It wants us to identify with the stranger, to share in his or her strangeness. Through this identification will come an end to the stranger's status as stranger and the beginning of a new status as neighbor and perhaps friend. Widows, orphans, and the poor. In the ancient Mideast, a woman without a man, either a father or a husband, or a child without a father had few rights and often suffered great abuses. Torah seeks to protect them by tying their welfare to God. This was a very radical social, social innovation. Hitherto, societies were used to having their gods side with the powerful. Here, the Jewish God takes the side of the powerless. The same is true when it comes to dealing with the poor. Credit may be given, but not at the cost of further impoverishment. Pledges may be taken, but not at the expense of the other's dignity. I am compassionate. Again, a radical innovation, a compassionate God. And we created in that image, chosen to walk in that way as a light unto the nations, must ourselves be compassionate. The Jewish concept of God is a wholly new idea. It is not our concern for monotheism that makes our concept unique. Other peoples, the Egyptians included, experimented with that idea, right, Akhenaten. What makes the monotheism of the Jews so unique is its ethical component. Ours is an ethical monotheism. One God is not enough. It must be a commanding God who establishes ethical standards by which harmony is maintained and justice ensured. You shall be a holy people to me. What does it mean to be holy? Holiness is the state of compassion that reveals the unity and interdependence of all life 
and the mutual responsibility, to Judah's point, of each to the whole. We are holy when we treat others with respect and kindness. We are holy when we safeguard the powerless. We are holy when we protect the earth. We are holy when we see to the holiness of others. We are holy when we do holy things. And the bulk of Torah is a listing of what those things are. Carol? I keep thinking about what's going on in Syria and Egypt at this point in time and how the Jewish community is trying to... Syria and Egypt or Syria and Turkey? Syria, I'm sorry. And how the Jewish community is trying to get together and help. Anyway, that's what I was thinking of when I was reading this. So, mm, I don't know if I should go here. One of my friends in Israel is saying, yeah, we hear a lot about what we're doing in Turkey, not so much what we're doing in Syria. And that, that's a discussion in Israel right now uh, among folks. Shelley? My mind goes to what is going on in Israel with the Arabs. Right. And the right of return, and, and that that doesn't exist in Israel when it comes to Palestinians. So the challenge is always how to apply the principles that we stand for. It's a real challenge. Right. It's, it's a real challenge, right? This, this is the primary challenge right now that we're dealing with in both countries, is how do you take an ideal and turn it into policy, turn it into the law of the land? Like how, we, are, we are deeply engaged in a debate about how to take policy and make it into law. And because I think... I think folks on the opposite side of a lot of policy discussions would agree with our values and ideals that we say our position, whoever we is, is, is being reflected in the policies we're supporting. They would, they would agree that they uphold the same values. They come to a very different policy position based on those values. That's crazy making. If you disagree on the values, okay, I get it. But when you agree on the values and then can't figure, right, come diametrically opposed to what policy decisions that leads to, it's really, really, really difficult. Really difficult. George? Yes, it's the definition. God establishes the ethical standards by which harmony is maintained and justice ensured. And this is for all countries and all positions. They just define justice differently. They implement justice differently. They implement it differently. Right, that, right. But also in their values, it could be different. And is. You know, it's right that I should be king and others should say. There's a lot of people who say that. I think I'm confused to your base point. What, well, what are you trying to say? Is that the concept of ethics, that all people, the Pharaoh had ethics. He just defined it differently than how we define ethics. But that's a, that's a big yeah. difference. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Of the, the Jewish position on ethics is defining justice in a particular way. Right. But other uh, dictators especially have a different definition of justice. Yes. Uh, let's look at Rabbi Rachel Goldenberg. This week's Torah portion Mishpatim is also called Sefer Habrit, the Book of the Covenant. God gives this set of foundational laws to the Israelites in order to create a just and compassionate society. 
At the heart of these laws lie principles such as dignity for the poor and the stranger, responsibility of neighbors and even enemies for each other, and respect for life itself. We may not agree with all of the laws in this Parsha, in particular the laws around slavery, women, and the laws involving capital punishment. However, the larger principles underlying these laws are some of the most sacred values we have. And in my understanding, and I would venture to say in the understanding of rabbinic Judaism, a commitment to this breach brings with it a responsibility to wrestle with these laws and to amend and interpret as times change and as new contexts require. In saying that they will do and then understand, the Israelites express faith that because this system is rooted in God's vision for humanity, it will, or is intended to, create a just and loving society where they are safe and cared for. Where does this faith come from? I think that same verse, 24-7, has the answer, we will do, na'aseh. Remember, na'aseh v'nishma, we will do and then we'll hear. Sometimes faith has to come through doing. The Israelites have already done a whole lot. They've celebrated the first Pesach, departed from Egypt, walked through the parted sea, heard God's voice at Sinai. These external experiences have brought the Israelites an internal sense that they are loved and cared for and have a purpose. Especially in these challenging times, I too draw faith from doing, from my participation in our democracy through voting and advocacy and activism. When I stand in line at the booth or am squished shoulder to shoulder at a demonstration, when I attend a town hall meeting or leave yet another message on Senator Schumer's voicemail because he's flooded with calls, I remember that I am part of a nation that is founded on a system of sacred values. This system is intended and designed to create a just and caring society for me and my children. While the system has many flaws, and while there is certainly a dark side that rears up all too often, it is ultimately this lineage of love and caring expressed in our constitutional covenant that gives me faith to continue saying, I will do. Yeah? Um, what I love about her piece is that it's very easy to sit back and despair. It's very easy to say, like, why should I have faith in the system? Like, look at us. We're like, it's ridiculous. Um, so we could go there, or we can say some of our faith comes through doing, that when we participate, we increase our faith and trust in the system, if not where it's at right now. Yeah? Um, yes, Rita. I feel like I have to be schizophrenic in a way to handle this kind of Torah portion. Orthodox Jews believe that Torah was given from Sinai and everything is from God. Other Jews believe that we have created this system ourselves. And actually, I would be more proud if the people created these rules. It, it sort of um, it makes me feel like we are even more special than if we were just chosen and we followed these rules. I mean, this is sort of um, rebellion against my Orthodox background, but I feel almost more proud if, if the people themselves had created this whole system of morality and ethics. Uh, I don't know. There's no answer. It's just something. Yeah, else. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I know. I guess my instinct is I am very proud to come from a people who wrote a story about a God who cares about the oppressed. Okay. I, I don't have to be schizophrenic. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I'm very proud to come from a people who characterizes God as compassionate, as caring about the widow and the orphan. 
too often talking about Pharaoh. Pharaoh cares about the powerful. And the gods are on the side of who won. Right? On the side of the powerful, obviously, because they won. But that's not the God that the Israelites created. The Israelites created a God who was compassionate and cared about the stranger and the widow and the orphan. That's crazy. In, in the ancient world's context, you know, in the ancient Middle East context, that's insane. I love that we come from an insane people. Right? Does that, does that make sense, Rita? No, that's a very good way of looking at it. That we Say, wait, wait, wait. The Jews in the room are making noise. Say it again. I think it's a very good way of looking at it. In other words, that we Jews created the God that gave us this thing. So it's all coming from us rather than... Nachon. Nachon. Yes, exactly. And, and again, I'm not someone who's going to say whatever the divine is, it had no part in this. Like, I believe when we're connected and tapped into whatever it is we understand the divine to be about, we would naturally come to these conclusions. Right? Like, you know, so for me, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Yes, Betsy. Is this stranger that we're supposed to care for and the orphans and et cetera include non-Jews or is this just being... Stranger was usually a non-Jew and there was no Jew or non-Jew in ancient Israel. At that time. There was only Israelite or non-Israelite. And And the stranger stranger was usually non-Israelite. So Davka, Davka, you shall, you shall care for the one who's not like you, who's not connected to you, but who lives with you. Well, that is so dramatically ignored now. <laughs> That's you know? so dramatically ignored now? What are you talking about, Betsy? I mean, within certain segments of the Jewish community I'm talking about, you know, there, there's no tolerance for non-Jews, period. I mean, there's no effort to care for the stranger who is not Jewish. I feel like within progressive Judaism, that's not true. I agree. Yeah. I'm in certain that. Jewish circles, uh, yeah. yes. Um, but I think in progressive Judaism, that's not the norm. Yeah. We, we work on behalf of many, many, mostly non-Jewish charitable causes. Right. But as you know, I'm referring, referring to the Orthodox community. And right. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Betsy has a son who's in that world and in that community, and it's it's sometimes very painful to look at our progressive understanding of some of these things, and then to have you, in your lived experience, hear it interpreted so differently, and watch it be played out very differently. I know it's it's super super painful. I was going to add that I think that a lot of the reaction of that community to the stranger is out of a history of fear. Sure. And oppression sure. from that strange community. Absolutely. And it has so distorted our view of the world so that this can't this teaching can't be enacted. Absolutely. I so understand it. So one of our commentaries let's go there. Rabbi John Lewis Aaron says, to your point exactly, Lisa. One of the greatest challenges our ancestors faced after leaving Egypt was to find the appropriate way to use the experience of slavery and oppression to shape their political structures and social conscience. They needed to answer the question of how the memory of slavery and slaughter would be expressed in the life and the culture of the Jewish people. 
As they forged a new society in the course of their wanderings from the borders of Egypt to the land of promise, under Moses' leadership and God's guidance, they needed to grapple with the horrendous experiences of slavery and slaughter, powerlessness and despair. The question that had to be answered was this. Would their bitter memories lead to a society built on anger and resentment or to one founded on compassion and concern? Exactly to your point. We cannot diminish the seriousness of their task. The path they followed defined our distinctive Jewish value system, which stresses concern for the stranger because we remember we were strangers in Egypt, and support for the vulnerable members of society because we know that God who heard our cries in Egypt pays heed to the cries of the poor and the oppressed. As Jews living just a half century after the Holocaust, an experience at least as shattering as that of Egypt and far more painful to us because it is still part of our living memory, this question challenges us anew. We are still in the process of rebuilding Jewish life after the destruction of European Jewry. As we construct monuments and erect museums to the memory of the Holocaust, we need to ask ourselves if our memory of those dark days will turn us into another small, angry people, or instead, will we remain the proud descendants of ex-slaves who taught us and the world that suffering can also motivate us to compassion? He said it much better than I could in response to exactly that set of circumstances, right? So one way is to, is to close the doors, close the gates, circle the wagons, and care for your own because no one else is going to do it, right? They didn't care. They let it happen. All of them let it happen, right? So not just the perpetrators. Everyone else in the world let it happen. So you can circle the wagons and turn inward and only take care of your own. That's one response to that kind of a history. Um, the other response is because we know what that feels like, we create Jewish World Watch to end genocide because no one understands it better than we do having faced it how many times, including, right, so recently. Therefore, we will stand, right, with all others who face those kinds of, of dangers and, uh, and oppression. Okay. David? Amy, thanks. Um, I'm somewhat unsettled a little bit by this discussion of values and behavior. And I want to use an example to show my frustration or my concern. Okay. Let's just assume that Moses got up in the morning and walked outside of his tent. And there was a homeless man lying right in front of his tent. Mm-hmm. And Aaron got up, and there was a homeless person lying outside of their tent. And they said, we have to help you. That's our value system. And we're going to provide housing for you, and we're going to move you to the housing. And the homeless people say, no, 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 you can't do that because I have my rights, and I want to live outside your tent. How do you think the ancient Jews, the ancient people, would behave with this kind of a problem. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Like, what do you? Thank you. It's a, yeah, right. I mean, it's a very complicated situation when rights come up against, right? You know, when when rights co- collide. Um, so we have a, a responsibility to house everyone. The unhoused also have a right to refuse that, right? So what do you do then with? 
you know, the, the folks who say, well, now the right of the unhoused to remain unhoused puts me at risk. This is what it means to live in a society. It means we have to balance different, different interests, different rights against different responsibilities. And it is always an evolving situation. It is the reason always... I have this problem with what we're talking about is that we haven't really said what you just said. It seems very clear what our ethics should be and our values should be, and you would think that you could derive an answer from that, but it's not so clear. No. No. And that's why Jewish law cont- <coughs> uh, continued to evolve. So when... Betsy asks, how did we get from you shall not see the kid in its mother's milk to no cheeseburgers or no chicken divan? How did we get there? It's because the situation continues to evolve and Jewish law had to evolve with it. That also goes to something that, that's more not about ritual and eating, but to, to murder, to manslaughter, to the, the unhoused. Like, it, it's everything. That we can say we have a value, but how you implement that over and against other values that we have, and sometimes our values conflict, then what? And so it has to continue to evolve. There, there are no simple answers, and anyone who tells you there is is lying. They've not lived in a real society that really has to grapple with real situations. I'm sorry. It just, so it, this is not the law forever. This is the law as it stood thousands of years ago. Mishnah, Talmud, continues to expand the law and continues to argue different sides of how to solve exactly the kind of problems that you're talking about, Dave, and that that we're dealing with still. Yes, we are dealing with it still. In terms of the homeless, uh, many, many years ago, of course, the homeless would be in state hospitals where their freedom was totally restricted. Can't hear him. Okay, speak up, George. Thank you. Uh, but now, for example, the governor has proposed a thing called the CARES Project where they have protected, trying to protect the individual rights as well of the, uh, the uh, people in the street, as well as the uh, legal obligations to, to protect freedom. And it looks, they've done a number of things. The Civil Liberties Union is against it because people should be totally free. And the conflict continues on in this day. Is really right. So, so that is the most complicated part of taking values and turning them into policy. The most complicated part of taking values and, and enacting them in law is that we have values that conflict. That's really where it gets complicated. So the, the ACLU is saying, right, there's a value to human freedom. Right, but other folks are saying, yes, there's also the value that we have for people to be protected from the elements. And like a basic human right is shelter. So the right to be free versus right the, and so like there's and that we have a responsibility to both those values and to the people who are involved who Yes. So it, it's very complicated. H. A. Heschel wrote a book called God in Search of Man mm-hmm. and a lot of the idea behind it is that I'm talking traditional language, is that God needs us. And that Torah isn't just what's on the page. I guess traditionally Talmud is also Torah. Yes. But that to some extent Torah is our interaction. The human piece interacting with the written word. 
and, with that, and, and that we are here to complete Torah and to partner with God in the evolution of Torah. Right. That's what we're saying, right? Right. That's what we've been yeah, saying, yeah, right? Yeah, like that. A.J. Heschel, who is a very classical, uh, traditional Jewish writer and a Hasidic, very much said the same thing. So yeah. This isn't just Betsy's son would agree. Not, yeah, it's not just progressive Judaism that says this. No, this absolutely. Absolutely. I, I sorry if I meant to imply only progressive Jew. I think I said it when I said the law expands, even within the, especially within the Hasidic world, who care more about halacha than we do. We don't really look generally to Jewish anything to come up with what we believe American policy should be. It's informed by it, but we don't go back to Torah and say, what does Torah say? That's the son does, right? And then what does that mean for today? So, like, I did not mean to imply at all that it's, like, even mostly progressive Jews who who do that. Um, yeah, Emma Linda. Uh, thank you. I think that there's there's a layer that, that feeling called to be God's hands in the world carries an obligation to to speak to our faith calling us to the liberatory, inclusive, justice-minded take on this ancient text because we know that people who want to use it for oppressive purposes are definitely claiming that that is a faith-based stance. And I don't want to cede the moral high ground to people whose morals I am fundamentally opposed to. Thank you, Emma-Linda. Thank you. You just expressed, right, the the strength behind our passion as uh, progressive Jews. Absolutely right. When people say, well, why do you have to bring God into it? And I'm talking about progressive people. Why do you have to bring God into it? If you don't believe God's a being and you don't believe God gave all this, why bother? Can't you just say this is what's right to do? And I'm with you, Emma Linda. The reason I bring God into it is because I will not cede God to them. And I will not cede these holy texts and their interpretations of it to them. Right? That is my religious obligation as a liberal Jew is to say, uh-uh. Right? And if you want to have this conversation, right, Itai, let's have it in Hebrew. You really want to have this conversation, let's have it in Hebrew. You who are such experts on the text. Get me started. So, um, yes, thank you, Emma Linda. Beautifully, beautifully said. Okay, should we do one more? Or are we out of time? All right, maybe one more. One, th- one thing we haven't talked about, but I, I suppose we've been thinking about it as we've been talking, mm-hmm. is what happens if you walk out of your house or out of your synagogue and there's somebody there with a rifle in their hand? You don't have time to, or even a moment perhaps even to think about the, what might happen other than seeing or thinking about what could happen when you see that rifle in front of you. I, I'm confused. What the, what, what are you, what are you, is there a question or a, like a point? Oh, I'm what, making a point. Given yeah. what happened in, in wherever it was, Fairfax, in the last day or two. Pico hmm? Robertson. Pico, Pico Robertson, where somebody or a couple of people were leaving their synagogue and there was somebody standing right out in front with a rifle and not saying, hello, how are you? And they didn't get to say, hello, how are you? Somebody shot at them. So what's, what is the point you're making? My point is, my point is that there are we we have talked about many different kinds of things in a way things could or should happen when we are facing or 
integrating with people who are not from our culture. Um, we have time to try to be um, part of the conversation and so forth. But sometimes there is no time for the conversation. Yeah, well, Torah's not interested in conversation with somebody with a gun. Torah's not interested. Torah would say shoot him. I'm just saying. Like, we, like, talked to, we talked about many different ways it could happen and how Torah could be interested. But we didn't um, talk about what happens when it's not. Yes, yes. Torah would we say have seen what it's human over life trumps everything. Pikuach nefesh trumps everything. We don't give a crap about the stranger who's got a gun. Human life trumps everything. And so that Torah values, when we talk about values conflicting, sure, how we greet someone who's not from our community should be a value that we generally live into. If they're holding a gun and pointing it at us, pikuach nefesh is the value that trumps everything. It's very clear. I guess I, what I needed to do was hear it said out loud. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, good. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, pikuach nefesh. So when values collide, sometimes we've been talking about the ways it's not easy. Right? It's very complicated. There are sometimes it is not complicated at all. Right? If somebody came in here to hurt our kids, I would have zero compunction about pulling a trigger. Like it, it, zero. So it, right? There are times it's very clear to us what what the hierarchy of values calls for, and there's times, too many times where it's not clear. Um, but but thank you for for having us clarify that there's times it's extraordinarily clear that this value goes away when this one is threatened. Something maybe a little less threatening than the one Linda brought up, um, the protection of the widow. I've had experience in that regard, and I have never yet been able to go to a car dealer, a car repair person, an appliance dealer, without having a man with me to argue, because I see so little respect for the widow. Okay. All right. Let's go to Yitz Greenberg, um, who says, to those of us who are a little like, what? This isn't happening anytime soon. The utopian total transformation of nature and history, he says, will be realized through a pragmatic, human-centered, real-life process. The essence of this paradoxical method is to start by affirming the value of the real world as it is and the importance of living life in it. At the same time, the covenant focuses on the future ideal world. Participants commit to move the present status quo toward that desired ideal state. This will be done by upgrading conditions step by step, bringing improvements while affirming human dignity even of proponents of the status quo, that one's hard, um, and accepting limitations, i.e. not overriding or, or coercing people to move to a higher level. That's hard, too. The divine sets goals, instructs, inspires, and judges. But the human partner must actively participate in the process or the desired outcome will not happen, to Bert's point. Living by the covenant translates into reviewing every behavior in life. Each action is shaped and reshaped while fully anchored in the present reality. Each behavior should reflect some movement toward the ideal, honoring the ultimate standard. I defend the Torah's choice of temporarily, he's talking about laws about slavery and all those kinds of things, rather than just abolishing slavery. He's answering kind of those, those kinds of things. 
I defend the Torah's choice of temporarily incorporating social evils out of the belief that the future ideal world is best realized by the covenantal method. Partnership with God and between the generations, working via gradualism, compromises, respect for human nature and the dignity even of opponents, and never ceasing until complete repair is achieved, may be slower and morally compromised, but it will more likely get to the goal. I acknowledge the heavy human cost along the way. Still, I believe that there is a lesser toll and less human suffering in this method than has been done by the more ideologically driven, more universal, more immediate, totally demanding movements for redemption that have proliferated particularly in recent centuries. So I know that was a mouthful. To me, it's really hopeful because what Yitz Greenberg is saying is that's the point of covenant, is that the world is crap. That's the world we live in. Torah's not written for Eden. Torah's not necessary in Eden. Torah is necessary for a messy, messed up human world. And the point of covenant is to take everything as it is and to move it slowly, gradually, together, by compromising, by arguing, by settling sometimes, towards the ideal. And that as, as yucky as that can feel, because it's slow, and it's messy, and we have to sometimes give up, right, part of what we really want, and really believe should happen right now or yesterday, we have to give up, yes, parts of what we want, yes. He says there's less human suffering, and ultimately more long-lasting change in the direction that we want when we do it this way, rather than a totalitarian regime of what we want to see happen. Because as much as I argue about totalitarian regimes, and as much as I talk about authoritarianism and its dangers, don't you think I want one that's got our policies? Of course I do. A lot of us do. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to say it out loud, but I'll take the hits. I'll take the risk. I would love that. Let's have a totalitarian regime imposing all of our liberal values on the entire American society. But what happens with that, right? What happens when you impose that? Yitz Greenberg is saying that is not a covenantal model because you're then you're then violating the whole thing about choice and the whole thing about people being able to buy in because you're imposing it. And that's against Torah val- the ultimate Torah value, which is a covenantal relationship. And so for me, I needed to hear that teaching because I get very impatient and it's very hard and it's easy to despair and say, right, well, if we have to compromise and if what, like gun, gun safety, to Linda's point, like, What the heck is it going to take? How many children have to die before we have a discussion? Forget policy. Before we even have a national conversation about gun laws. Right? Like how? So I get super impatient, but Yitz's point is, don't know how many are going to have to die. But we have to do this. We're going to have to figure this out as a country together. It can't just be imposed that that is not the covenantal model so um it is a really important reminder and teaching for me um who gets a little impatient sometimes
Linda saying we may not in this room ever see forward progress, but maybe we are part of the beginning. That, of that, that and that's exactly, I think, it's his point. Rabbi Greenberg's point is exactly that. That we, if you, and this is Yehuda Kurtzer's point from the summer is, if you're about something really important, you probably won't live to see it happen. If you're about a project that's really important, you probably won't live to see it. And, and that's what we have to accept, right? You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.